This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. By the way, i got to say that one of the reasons that we're recording these Smackdowns is because I got invited to do something with a bunch of high school kids. They had a group. I can't remember what they called their group, but um, they're kind of environmental, an environmental group. And then um, somehow there was this woman that has a radio show, and she's tied to this this local group of high school kids. And so then um, she set it up. And so I'm on the radio and talking to these high school kids at the same time. Um, and so they just basically asked me questions, and uh, I got a lot of positive feedback in many different directions about it. And so kind of got the idea of like, well, we could do some of that with our Patreon peeps. And so that's kind of what we're doing, I think. All right. Katie, do you have any other questions? Not right now. Thank you. Okay. So um, uh, we answered Oakland's, we answered Katie's, and Mark didn't have any. And um, there were a couple of questions that people posted out on um, uh, the, the Patreon thingamabob. Penny asks, I would love to hear what trees you might recommend for planting in my meadow. Zone 6B, 22 inches of rain, 24 inches of snow. Uh, okay. I'm... I'm all right, skipping past that. South-facing, about 20 acres, heavy clay soil. Has been used for cattle grazing for the last 10 years at least. Fairly sparse grass. Lots of narrow-leaf plantain. Bordered on two sides by pine and fir. Okay, so that's, that's good. That's, a, that's giving us a lot of indicators of what their soil is like. Several wild rose bushes and one area that forms a shallow pond slash marsh for half the year, about one acre in size. In summer, the clay cracks and the dirt is like concrete. I would like to use the area for rotational grazing of dairy goats, beef cattle, and pigs. Thanks for your thoughts. All right. Um, did it say anything in there about slope? I mean, clearly, if there's a spot that has a shallow pond or marsh, it makes sense that probably the rest of the property is higher than that, which suggests slope. And so, um, and then then what she's, I I mean, I want to start talking about earthworks right away. And I want to talk about a hoop culture, and I want to talk about berms, and I want to ask about the wind, and and uh, and I want to. Is there? I don't see anything about water passing through the land, and then I kind of wonder about like, well, do we want to kind of make some of our own, huh? 
and uh, and things of that nature. I I kind of wonder about um, do we have enough water nearby that we might make our own ponds and the like. So, but just trees, and it's a it's a heavy clay soil, and so that suggests that a lot of the rain that lands there runs off. So again, oh, I want to do earthworks. I have so many ideas for earthworks I want to talk about. But, okay, um, I would, I mean, oh, I'm going to, I'm just going to jump right into, I, I got to say, um, I want to do hugel culture, if nothing else, to be able to get out of the heavy clay soil. Because I'm, I'm a little worried about, like, if, if I go and I start putting in a bunch of apple trees, are the apple trees going to basically suffocate in all that heavy clay soil? So I kind of feel like if I can make some hula culture beds, then at least here's a spot where a tree can put its roots and breathe, you know, and not, not suffocate. So... Um, I, I feel like without having a lot more knowledge about what's going on there, then I, I want to I wanna throw in the hugaculture. And then, therefore, because I've got hugacultures and possibly berms and I've added texture in the landscape, plus if it's got heavy clay soil, you're going to be able to make oodles of ponds crazy easy. And, and so I want to put in a bunch of different ponds. And, uh, um, and oh, geez, now my mind's going crazy because the next thing I'm thinking is, is this thing, oh, look, here's somebody on the call named Penny. And I'm answering Penny's question. I wonder, could it be the same Penny? Of course, Zoom says that Penny doesn't have a microphone. So <laughs> I guess, I guess we'll never know. Um, she could type in the chat though. I don't Zoom, right? have the, chat open right now. I'd have to go find it. But um, all right, let's let's pretend for a moment that we've set up a bunch of hubicultures so that way the tree's roots can breathe. Then of course what I want is diversity. I want to have ten percent of the whole property planted in black locust. And then I want to um, start sprinkling in a whole bunch of taprooted nut trees and also a bunch of uh, apples. And I want to start everything from seed. So everything that can have a taproot has a taproot. Now, black locusts, as far as I know, black locusts do not have a taproot, even if you start them from seed in the ground. And if anybody knows anything contrary to that, I would really like to hear it. But even still, um, uh, so it's asking what kind of trees, what trees would I recommend for planting a meadow? I I would also say that uh, because one of the most famous nut trees is the black walnut, which is famous for juglones and uh, other plants, most plants won't survive around a black walnut then um, I might just have a, a patch off to one side where I'll have a few black walnuts and the other trees that will do well with black walnuts. Um, but then uh, lots of other nut trees and then lots of other fruit trees and, you know, of course, the black locust trees. Uh, 
some people might go for some other nitrogen-fixing trees, but, um, boy, I just come back to black locust over and over and over again as the primary nitrogen-fixing tree. I think when it comes to, like, alfalfa, uh, that's a great one uh, to, to put it into the mix, but that's not a tree, and I'm being asked about trees. Um, I want to go on and on about the values of black locust, but I think I've done it in this podcast plenty over the years. Um, uh, honey locust is a nitrogen fixing, but honey locust is famous for being nitrogen greedy. It won't share its nitrogen with the other plants around it. Um, all right. There, there are a few others. I mean, Russian olive comes to mind, but, um, this spot, I, you know, you might plant some Russian olive, um, but even though it's a nitrogen fixer, it, uh, uh, there's enough moisture here that you're not going to get the, the big superpower from Russian olive for the, uh, um, uh, uh, drought handling. I would say that in the wet spot, I would want to put some weeping willows. Um, for a variety of different reasons. And um, uh, we just spent an enormous amount of time. So Opalin was asking at the beginning of this about which um, uh, uh, which aspects or which badges are going to be getting changes and stuff like that. And I know that about a week ago we finished up the gray water and willow feeder one. And in the gray water and willow feeder stuff, it's, it's, uh, when it comes to gray water systems, we direct all of our gray water systems to mulch pits for all the badges. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, surround it with something like a willow tree. So I, I kind of feel like there's just tons of reasons to get willow trees going. And if you've got a wet spot, boy, willow trees love those wet spots so much. Um, and uh, uh, there's a lot more to be said about that, but so some willow trees are good. Um <clears throat> You're surrounded by conifers, um, pine and fir. I would say that on the 20 acres, I would choose to, I don't know, I might end up with a total of three pines and three fir trees on the whole property. And, and they would be spread out. They wouldn't be focused on any one spot. Um, uh, the reason is is that they, they do change the pH, and so there's going to be some plants that will enjoy the lower pH that will be provided. Um, I would say uh, um, those, those are going to be in certain spots to just help lower the pH in, in a few different spots, but I, wouldn't, I would want very few of those. Uh, definitely not like the stuff that's on your borders. All right. Anybody have anything to add to that? Depending on whether you have deer pressure from those adjacent woods, you know, I think it would make sense to also try to broadcast some seed for, you know, herbaceous or, you know, uh, ground cover type plants that maybe would distract them. And they come in and say, oh, look at those tasty little apple trees that have been planted out in that field of otherwise no food, right? So um, just to give them a chance to survive, to, 
to give uh, a, a bit more variety of food choices to the animals that would otherwise eat what you're planting. Well, that's a double-edged sword because it's like, okay, I'm giving you something to eat and, the, and not my apple trees. It's not like you sat down with the, the deer coalition and hammered out a contract. Okay, I'll give you this food if you promise not to eat my apple trees, okay? You know, it's, it's not like that happened. And so what you might end up doing is attracting a lot of deer to your area, thus increasing your deer pressure, and now they're going to eat both. Whereas before, there was a lot of scarcity, and so you didn't have as many deer. I kind of feel like if the deer can get to your trees, there's a good chance they're not going to make it. Now, um, there's, of course, ways to mitigate that. And the one that is the most popular way in this podcast is Sepulcher's Bone Sauce. Um, and so it's like, okay, I've, uh, which is, the bone sauce is a little tricky when you've planted a thousand apple tree seeds and, uh, and you're out there looking for them and they're just this tall and you're trying to get down on your hands and knees and give them a little bit of the bone sauce. Um, and then it's like when there's 500 little baby trees, it's kind of hard to get that around to everybody. And then you know that you're going to need to, they're going to grow a whole bunch, and that isn't enough bone sauce to get them by as they're getting bigger. And so you have to come back and do that again, unless, of course, you want to go and do fence things, which is probably the wise way. But but to do a fence around 20 acres, that is a big job. But if your fence is... Uh, exclusively about keeping the deer out, that gets a little bit easier. But that turns into a whole nother question. <laughs> yeah, because that has to be a tall fence. Unless you include a, uh, a hedge around all 20 acres or the area that at least that you want to protect. You know, doing, say, like Osage Orange, um, planting those in a tight formation so that they uh, can grow and protect the, the other plants inside. Well, I know that up on Fred's plot, Fred is doing a tanglefoot fence. And so rather than doing, because like the, the junk pole fences that we make here are eight feet tall to keep the deer out. and uh, But they're also thick at the bottom to keep chickens and their chicks in. Um, but, uh, and also to help keep the coyotes out. So it's a pretty sturdy stout fence at the bottom, and then it's eight feet tall. But Fred's doing a tanglefoot fence. And, uh, cause he just needs to keep the deer out. He doesn't need to try and keep the coyotes out. He doesn't have, he's not going to be raising any chickens. And so, um, <clears throat> and then he's going to, he's making something that's like a bunch of brush that has been piled four or five feet high. And it's big enough that the deer don't feel like they can get over it. Like they can't see the other side to see that there's a safe place to land. And and at the same time, they can't step on it. Because, you know, they'll get all tangled up in it. So it's sufficient. All right. 
as for trees to plant on Penny's 20 acres, does anybody have anything to add to that? Silence means no. Okay. Next question. Ivar asks, I'm interested in urban environments. I know this isn't specifically Paul's wheelhouse, but it's hard to find stories of people doing the same cool stuff Paul does, but in the city. Things like rocket mass heaters, composting toilets, gray water. Uh, the Building a Better World book covers these lightly and is inspiring, but it's hard to marry that inspiration with practicality when you don't have the same land or are restricted by HOAs and the like. Well, I know we've been working on the P stuff a lot, and um, I know that uh, two weeks ago, I think we finished up the um, badge for gardening for P, so it was 100% indoors. Um, <clears throat> so that can be very urban. Um, I I found it to be, I mean, the stuff we came up with, I thought was really amazingly cool. I mean, we, when working with P, we're, we're held under the constraint of, like, we cannot assume that the person doing P has a balcony. We cannot assume they have access to a nearby park, nor can we assume that they have access to a nearby garden. Um, we have to basically assume that the outdoor environment can be anything that is inhospitable to what we're attempting to describe for a BB. So it's all got to be in the apartment. Everything that happens has to happen in the apartment. So when we're, um, so I think we did a really great job. Lots of herb gardens happening inside. Um, I mean, there were some houseplant things to be sure, but there were also, I think, five or six different types of food crop. And the idea wasn't to grow a massive amount of food crop, but to grow any food crop. And uh, so, for example, one of the things that we did for fruit was strawberries. And you can grow strawberries indoors. And we said, all right, to get this BB, you have to grow, I believe it's a half a cup of strawberries. Um, and uh, we also said you have to grow... I think it's a half a cup of some kind of grain. And Mike was like, Mike was thinking, that's just silly. <laughs> don't, don't grow grain. <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. And I was like, yeah, but if you grew it and then you got a half a cup, and I don't know, you made oatmeal one morning out of the oats that you grew, it's food. You know, the, the, the great thing about grain is how well it's, doors um but you know you you learn a lot about what it takes to to grow it and thresh it and uh and and you're gonna have to winnow it inside <laughs> i think i think there's a lot of powerful lessons to be learned from having a garden 
in your home when you don't when you don't have access to land outside. So it's like if you if you're aching for a garden and you're stuck in an apartment, there's those mushroom kits. And that was one of the BBs where you get a mushroom kit and you set it up on your kitchen table and you spray it every day. And then suddenly there's a whole bunch of oyster mushrooms. No, that works great. That's wonderful. There's a lot you can do. But, okay, things like rocket mass heaters. So I remember uh, when I first went to Ernie and Erica's home, they were living in Portland, Oregon, and uh, which is an urban environment. <laughs> and they had a rocket mass heater in their house, and they had a neighbor, and I don't know what the neighbor's actual name is, but I'm going to call her Mrs. Kravitz. <laughs> so Mrs. Kravitz lived next door, and she perpetually peeped out her window to see what those damn dirty, stinky hippies are doing now. And she called the authorities regularly to complain about these dirty, stinky hippies next door. And uh, so Ernie and Erica got lots of hassles from Mrs. Kravitz's efforts. But they never got hassled from Mrs. Kravitz about the rocket mass heater because she never knew they had one. She never saw smoke coming out of their building. Now, I, I want to emphasize that I think that everybody needs to treat a rocket mass heater exactly the same way that everybody treated marijuana in the United States. And what I mean by that is, is that nobody touched marijuana ever until the government said it was okay. I think we should do the same thing with rocket mass heaters. I mean, just because it'll save you thousands of dollars a year and save the world from all of us dying, that's no excuse. You obey the law. Now, the good news is, is that Portland, Oregon now has building codes with rocket mass heaters in it, and a lot of insurance companies are coming around, and including uh, rocket mass heater stuff in their insurance packages. So when it comes to rocket mass heaters in cities, a lot of that is getting all worked out. Um, Ivar asks about composting toilets. Well, I could talk about composting toilets, but I'd much rather talk about willow feeders. Um, but I do know that I was interviewed by the local paper in Missoula a few years ago when somebody wanted to put in a composting toilet, and, the, and they were currently not allowed. And, um, and I basically said that if you're going to ask a regulator about whether or not it's okay to put in a composting toilet, which is the question being put to them, and the regulations say no, the regulator is paid to say no. And, and so 
there's nothing else the regulator can do. The regulator's getting paid to enforce the laws that have been handed to the regulator. If you wish for that to change, I mean, one of the things, of course, is to possibly do it anyway. But um, but if you wish for the law to change, you have to talk to the lawmakers and and persuade them to change. So, um, which is, that's, there you go. It's a big thing in an urban environment. And a lot of composting toilets are specifically outlawed, and there's good reasons for it. And, and so it's kind of like um, you might say that you're going to do all these things with your composting toilets. And then what the lawmakers are thinking, like, okay, and then they have a bunch of visitors come over and they help and they do it all wrong. Now, I, and, and then that makes people sick. And their job is to prevent people from getting sick from dumb fuckery like that. I mean, there's a reason why they force everybody to hook up to the sewage treatment plant. The sewage treatment plant is still falling short of optimal. But what they're doing is way better than what would happen if a bunch of dumb fucks got together in a concentration like, like the city and half of them did something awful such that 90% of the people in the population ended up getting sick and dying. And so we've got um, a system in place that's far superior than crazy town, and somebody doing a composting toilet wrong, like, you know, the Jenkins system, I filled up this bucket and um, I spilled a lot on the way out to the compost pile, and um, when I put it on the pile... I kind of needed to do some other, uh, some other steps, but I was in a hurry, and so I didn't. And it turns out there's people in my house with hep C, and now other people in the neighborhood mysteriously have hep C. And it's not my fault. I mean, I followed the law. So composting toilets are being specifically outlawed. And so I kind of am trying to get willow feeders to to be developed into a space and I think we're getting there where it's dramatically superior to that kind of thing it's it's like harder to screw up <clears throat> harder harder for mistakes to happen and then the final result uh, is something that's dramatically superior to uh, a sewage treatment plant which is better than the composting toilets and better than a uh, septic tank in a drain field, which is better than a conventional outhouse, which is better than shitting on the ground. All right. And then gray water. I, I, I want to encourage a mulch pit, and then you can do like what Art Ludwig uh, suggests, uh, laundry to landscape, just a mulch pit, and just hook your laundry up to it. Now, here's an amazing thing that we just recently figured out, and that is that here in Montana, in the wintertime, that willow tree is going to go dormant. And um, now... I would say three months ago, my understanding would be, and this is just my guess, my guess 
was that the willow tree in its dormant state would not take up anything. So if, if you're squirting out something from your laundry to where the willow tree's roots are, the willow tree is dormant and it takes up zero. But we found out that while the willow tree is dormant, its roots are still quite active. In fact, its roots will probably take up, and this is based on a whole lot of different reading and it's pure speculation. It would need to be measured to be, to be able to verify this. But, but the uh, results that we've been able to, to read and understand so far are amazing. The willow tree will probably take up about a quarter to a third of what it takes up during um, late spring or even midsummer. And so um, there's, they're still very, they're still quite active. So if you have a really big mulch pit and that willow tree gets in there and it takes every speck of wood chip and polishes every bit of nitrogen off of every wood chip throughout the summer such that there's just no organic matter left and then goes dormant and then here comes a whole bunch of new nutrient coming down that gray water pipe and then um, uh, all that all those wood chips all that carbon wants to dance with that nitrogen first and foremost and then the willow tree will continue taking some of it out but the thing is is that between the willow tree taking some of it out and all of that carbon sucking up all that nitrogen I think that you're going to be very very safe all winter long in that none of your nitrogen is going to make it below the mulch pit so, um, and now granted, the question is, is about an urban environment. And so I think I've painted a picture of a gray water system in an urban environment. And we have a BB for doing that. Okay, so the question, I think it was urban environment. And, um, and he mentioned these three things in part of his question. And I think I've addressed all three things. All right, anybody got any responses to any of that stuff I just said? I have a question. Okay. okay. Um, you're saying a willow feeder in an urban environment. Can you describe the process? Do you have to have a little yard with a willow tree, I, I imagine? Well, you would if you're going to do a willow feeder in an urban environment. So let's just not think about regulations. Let's just leave that aside. I mean, I hope that our experiments are going to be massively successful and that urban lawmakers are going to embrace the willow feeder as preferable to sending that material down to the sewage treatment plant. Um, but I would have to say that in order to be able to do this in an urban environment, you would need 
a poop beast species of tree? Willow, cottonwood, or poplar? And and you'd have to have access to it, preferably in your yard. Now, if you're doing a little bit of gray water, chances are you already have one of those, because those are the species you're going to hook up to a mulch pit as well. So, uh, let's say you've got your mulch pit going, and it's got a willow tree right there next to the mulch pit. And then on the other side of that willow tree, in the spring, you're going to put the contents of, you're going to put the willow candy there at the right time of year, like mid-spring. Just when that plant, just when that willow tree is starting to really grow fast. You're going to lay down your willow candy at the foot of the tree on the opposite side of that mulch pit. So not like a five-gallon pot in the living room. Um, if you let's suppose you have a five-gallon container in <laughs> your living room, which is weird because hey, everybody, look at me, I'm pooping. Kind of not not understanding that or or. So I meant for the willow tree. <laughs> oh. Oh, well, let, let's say that you had a dog. Let's say that you're going to do a tiny scale, like a miniature, like a mini model. You're, you have a dog, and you have and you have poop on the balcony. And so, I don't I don't have this situation, but theoretically, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you could have like a willow, a, you know, potted plant version okay. of a, somebody right. who's a willow feeder. They're not going to have their tap root clearly, okay. but like, is that feasible? Like, what's the scenario? Okay, 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 okay. Here's here is what I'm I'm going to I'm going to enhance your urban picture just a little bit. So we're not talking about um, a willow feeder for people. Let's talk about this willow feeder for this dog. So you live in the city and you have a dog, and um, and there are dog poops, and we won't go into any details about. From from the dog to the bucket. Let's just say that there's a bucket, and in the bucket there is uh, some sawdust and there's dog poop, and then um, and then it's going to get to a certain point in time when the bucket is nearly full. So then we're going to put a big layer of sawdust on it. We're going to put uh, a lid on it and we're going to write the date. And it's a lid that is not a sealed lid. The bucket can breathe, but flies can't come and go. So it's a tight lid, but not a tight lid. Okay, I hope everybody understands what I'm saying. It's not airtight, but it does. it is snug enough that flies cannot come and go. Now we're going to date it, and we're going to write on it, you know, Lid put on on this date, do not open until two years later. So it sits there for two years. And then let's say it sits there for two and a half years because you put the lid on in the fall. And now it's time that there's a willow tree that aches for what's inside of this five-gallon bucket. So you're going to find that the five-gallon bucket is now a lot lighter than it originally was. And when you open it at the foot of a willow tree, you'll see that what's in there looks a little bit like earth. You might still be able to identify some of the sawdust. 
probably won't be able to identify any of the poops. But it's about half the size that it once was. Now, if it had truly composted, it would be even smaller than that. But that wasn't what we were shooting for. We want to keep as much carbon and nitrogen as we can in the bucket because that's the willow candy. So um, we're going to dump it at the foot of a willow tree um, somewhere around the drip line of the branches because that's about how far out the roots go and where the roots can take it up the best. So we're going to dump it on the ground, and then we're going to cover it with a good six to eight inches of wood chips and sawdust. And um, and we're done. We're on our way. So the willow tree has been fed its willow candy, and happiness goes on. Did I answer your question, or did I dodge it? I like this. This is a great picture. I like hearing it, story version. Um, but it, do, it sounds like still the willow tree is not inside your living room. Like it's just like the tiny tree version. Like on your, let's say on your balcony. Let's say you have a tiny balcony and you have like a like a big pot, like a, a pot for a tree. You know, you can't get any bigger than that. So maybe it's five gallon, maybe it's twice that. And and you have like this little mini version of a willow tree or whatever would survive in a pot. I don't know enough about it. Um, but you could put certain amount, like you were limited to the amount the tree could take up at the top rim of the pot, like at the edge as much as you, I don't know, on top of the soil that was in the pot. Is that even possible? Like how small scale do you have to get? Is it durable at that point? I mean, a willow tree is such a thirsty, thirsty tree. I can't help but think. I mean, I feel bad for the tree if it's in a pot. I mean, there's there's some trees that seem to, you know, cope okay with being in a pot. But a willow tree, I just, I don't know. I suppose it's possible. Somebody who is a, a super-duper um, indoor plant person could probably pull it off, but... Like a weeping willow tree to be strangled by a pot, I, I, it would hurt me to, it hurts me to think of it. Oh no, sorry. Maybe there's a different plant that's also very thirsty that is okay being in a tiny air container. Like not, a, not a less bonsai version of it. Ooh, I, I mean, okay. <clears throat> There is going to be a limit as far as the amount of water and, you know, let's call it fertilizer, um, that any plants going to take up based on that size, though. I think yeah. even with, if you had a chihuahua, it's probably going to be producing more poop than any five-gallon potted plant is going to handle by there's, a long shot. There's that. Um, uh I mean, willows are famous for being able to take in a lot of nutrients at once. Enormous. They're like, uh, whereas most plants, if you put that much nutrient near their roots, they will, like, run away screaming. Like, their roots in that space might even, uh, like, like, the tree will kind of sacrifice those roots. Like, I hereby divorce you, roots. I will not talk to you anymore. But for our poop bee species, their their position is more like, bring it on! <laughs> I'll do that, no problem, yeah! Somebody say barbecue, yeah! <laughs> so they'll, they'll gobble it up. 
But Mark's right. Uh, this species being constrained in that way, I mean, even if the pot was giant, I just kind of feel like it's not going to be giant enough. Plus, the other thing is, is I'm thinking, like, if the tree is outside, there's all of the other species and the other biological activity in the soil that's going to also work this this material and and help to get it to the tree and along the way take a little something for themselves. I mean there's this there's this rich biology that's going on right there. So I I'm thinking that when we talk about willow feeder stuff, it's for a willow tree that's outdoors and getting ample water. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm, and then it's like, as we try to think of like a different species to, to try and put in a, into a, a pot. Um, yes, there are species like bamboo is going to, is going to take up a lot. I mean, that's another thing too, is I want to stick to species that are non food species. But, um, and, and bamboo can be done, but it's kind of like, I don't know. I'm trying to think, like, if you have a, on your balcony, if you have a big, big, big pot and you've got a five gallon bucket, I, I kind of feel like your big, big pot might be like a 20 gallon pot and a five gallon bucket is still just too much. Um, kind of like what Mark was saying, even if it's something that can tolerate living in a pot, um, I don't know. This one's, this is hard for me to figure out. I, I just kind of feel like there needs to be a, in order to answer this, there would need to be a lot of experimentation. And I would much rather explore like somebody having a backyard in an urban environment and they have a willow tree and a mulch pit. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thanks for the thought experiment. That was fun. Okay. All right. Anybody else have any comments about this stuff from Ivar? Nobody. Okay. All right. Anybody else have anything? Because I've got a couple of things here to talk about, um, but uh, they're not that important. And um, we could leave them for another day. Or we can get on to what we were talking about doing, which is to do the chapter-by-chapter book review of Desert or Paradise next week. And so I'm, my guess is everybody wants to do that. So maybe, maybe we should start that next week. Um, does anybody have anything else they want to add to this call? Nope. All right. I'm going to say, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where we talk about willow trees, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.